So grab your Bibles. Let's go. We're going to go in First Peter. I want to just do a, a quick review in case you weren't here last week. Last week we talked about the sovereignty of Christ, talked about the foreknowledge of God, and talked about how in the New Testament almost always that is used uh, in passages with groups of people who are facing intense suffering. And what it's used for is it's used to comfort and encourage them. That although this is shocking or this is a big thing or has caught you by surprise, it's not caught God by surprise. And the issue is not um, what we go through. The issue is how we go through what we go through. That's what God is after. There's a refining process that we'll talk about uh, today. We said that fortitude is the ability to have courage in the face of pain, danger, or trouble. Take your pick there, all right? And fortitude is how we are to face pressure when the heat is turned up. In other words, you ever, well, you made me angry, right? And like the circumstances are why I reacted that way. Uh, No, the truth was you were angry inside and that circumstance just triggered what was already there. And we want to be people that God's working on from the inside out with our heart attitude. So we're going to be looking at three things this morning. We're going to be looking at the promise that Peter uh, talks about. We're going to be looking at the pressure He's going to talk about the pressure pretty honestly. And then we're going to look at the prize. All right. So let's pray and then we'll get started. Father, thank you uh, for this morning and thanks for this group right here. Uh, While millions are cheering a pigskin thing of leather, these people came and chose you. So in that sense, Lord, may you richly be with us because how the world sees it, And how it's measured is very different than how the kingdom sees it and how it's measured. And the truth is, you could do very significant things this morning in this group of people that would have incredible repercussions. Uh, And we just seek for you to be at work. I don't know which point will catch somebody, but from the other two services, uh, the sermon has jumped out at people and they've been having a dialogue with you. So I just pray for that same dialogue in this service that happened in the previous two. And we come to that with great enthusiasm and faith and ask this in your name. Amen. All right. All right, so let's begin. Uh, Peter, we're going to go start with verses 3 to 5. We're in First Peter chapter 1. And it reads like this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed at the last time. So Peter, remember we said last week, he's writing to these exiles. We made the correlation like the Syrian exiles and things today, the incredibly difficult circumstances they're in. And he calls them the elect exiles. In other words, God is walking with them in their exile. So he's talking to those who are going through suffering and persecution. And he laser beams their attention immediately back to God and all that God has done for him. Notice the opening phrase. What does it say? Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's the first thing he wants them to focus on. And what you notice is what he kicks in there is this thing of attention and blessing, right? What he's saying is keep your eye on the prize. Stay focused on the picture. Actually, the great picture. Because we're talking eternity here. And eternity is a whole lot bigger than our stuff. And so he's saying, I, yeah, I know you're going through all this and this looks all, but keep your eyes on God. Blessed be the God and Father 
of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, for Peter, you have to understand, this isn't just rhetoric. We kind of fossilize the, the people who wrote the New Testament. We kind of fossilize the word and say, well, they were holy people and men of God, and men of God did holy things, and they wrote holy things, and that's what holy people do. Right, And so they just came up with holy things to say to people. But they really didn't know real life. They didn't really have the struggles we have. And so it was easy for them to say those holy things because somehow they were just holier than us and we don't can't say the holy things they say. All right? Peter's a dude. He's a guy. All right? Now he is the leader of the church, but he's a man and he has learned a bunch of things walking. Remember we said he's an older guy. And when he says this, this isn't just apostolic rhetoric. This is what an apostle says. Oh yeah, that's what an apostle says. That's not what's going on here. It is a deeply held value for Peter. All right, When he says, according to his great mercy, you have to think of it from, from Peter's part. When, when, he, when he talks about this element of praise, this, this blessed part, there's so many words you could throw up there. You could throw up, uh, praise, lifted up, exalted. Why? Why do we do that? Because of God's great mercy. It says his great mercy. And again, this is not religious speak. This is not Peter trying to be holy. It's not a religious ploy or a hook. This is genuine, heartfelt appreciation according to his great mercy. Uh, who had experienced that kind of mercy? Peter had. Right? Think about uh, Peter and think about what Jesus' mercy looked like to Peter some 30 years after the fact. Think how many times Peter contemplated how he failed at the trial. Think how many times Peter had to go over his own stupid words and lack of courage where he said he didn't know Jesus. And think about Peter realizing that God understood and actually forgave him. That's powerful. So when Peter says, according to his great mercy, he's talking out of experience. He's talking about what God had actually done for him. And he's pointing that same mercy to this group of people. You know, Paul in Ephesians utters the same kind of sentiment. Paul's another person we fossilize, right? Well, he's the Apostle Paul, right? Wrote the New Testament. That's all he did. We don't think of him as a person. But he says this in Ephesians 2. Listen if you can see parallels with this that's up on the screen. But God, being rich in mercy, there's that phrase again, rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Hear the same theme of words? Mercy, grace, kindness, riches. Paul and Peter are both expressing something here. Both of these giants of the faith had a profound and deep appreciation and respect for how kind and merciful Jesus had been to them. Right? We know their stories. And how that mercy impacted their whole view of the kingdom. Why did they do what they did? Because God had been kind to them. That's why they did what they did. Why are many of you here today? Because God has been kind to you. He's been merciful to you. That's why you've come. 
Right? Paul and Peter are expressing the same thing. And if you think about it, their fortitude, their ability to stick with it, because we think of these guys as guys who could stand up against any kind of pressure or threat that came their way. Their fortitude really came out of his extended mercy to them. So even their strength came because of what God had done for them. And so the, the, the point here that I think we forget, when I say we fossilize, we, we forget both Peter and Paul had baggage. Right? We already talked about Peter's. He failed at the trial of Jesus. Paul, what, where did he fail? Well, he's sitting at the stoning of Stephen's, watching the garments and applauding. And then it says when persecution broke out, he became the persecutor of the church. It says he ravaged the church. That's not a good word. Okay? And the implication there is that he threw men and women, broke up households, broke up communities of faith, threw them in jail. And the implication is some were even murdered. Probably, maybe even by Paul's own hand. Think about that. And think about what they had to go through and realize that God loved them and his great love was expressed to where forgiveness was extended that that baggage was forgiven. You know, some of you in this room have sinned in ways you never dreamed you would have. You've done in your mind awful things, bad things, terrible things. So did Peter and Paul. But it says, God reached out and extended mercy to them. That's like a pole to a drowning person. It's extending so it can be grabbed and grasped. Here's the good news. Why am I stressing that or emphasizing that? I want to suggest to us this morning, if Jesus extended mercy to them, the Peter and Paul, he will also extend mercy to us. And if Jesus could fortify them after their failures, then he can also fortify us as well. Just because you fail doesn't mean it has to be the end. Just because you fail doesn't mean it has to be over. He can fortify us to keep moving forward in the grace he extends. And we can make it. And that's what Peter's saying to this group of people. Now, how does he fortify us? It says that we have been born again. He has caused us to be born again into a living hope. This is present active tense, living hope, like right now, like it's on. That's how we'd say it, right? It's on, right? This hope is not something that's way in the past, although there's been great hope in the past. And it's not only in the future, although there will be great hope in the future. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. But it's talking about it's on right now. Doesn't matter your age, doesn't matter if you're in elementary school, doesn't matter if you're junior high, doesn't matter if you're high school, doesn't matter if you're in college, doesn't matter if you've got a career, doesn't matter if you're single, doesn't matter if you're married. That is the hope is on right now. We've been born again into this living hope. And what's the living hope? Let's be really clear on this. The living hope is Jesus' resurrection from the dead. What we're actually saying, why we've gathered here this morning, if you're, you're new to Norfolk, you go, what's this place really about? What, what we're really proclaiming is that God has raised this Jesus who was crucified. He was killed. He has raised this Jesus from the dead. I mean, dead in the grave, up and out. That's what we're saying. That he has raised him from the dead and that there's no other name under heaven by which we can be saved. That's the hope we have entered into. And when we place our face in him, our, our faith, I said face, faith, face plant, our faith, by third service, you're, right? When we place our faith in him, 
And what I mean by that is this is not just, oh, yeah, I believe there's a God out there. So this is all the eggs in the basket. This is I believe you can carry me. This is totally trusting. This is total surrender. This is calling on him as Lord and Savior. When we do that, the Bible says then we're saved. Peter's talking to a group of people who have totally bought into this like we have. He's saying, look, I know you came to faith. I know you understand. Therefore, I'm, I'm asking these things of you because I know, I know it's gripped you. I know you have that hope inside of you. It says that we have been born again into this living hope and that it is God himself that has brought it about. In other words, we didn't save ourselves. We don't save ourselves. If you're here this morning so that you can be saved and you're hoping you can become a good enough person so you can be saved, gong, thanks for playing. Done work. All right? Out. Done. If you're here this morning to find out how you could put your faith in somebody who can save you, then you're on the right track. All right? Because it is God who brings about this great hope, not us. And that's what Peter's trying to say. And then he adds an and in there. See the and in there? It says and. It's a huge and. He's talking about and into what? Into an inheritance. Now, inheritance, inheritance, we know what inheritances are, right? And and many of us have experienced that. Or we've, we've heard stories of inheritance, and a lot of them are how inheritances go bad or wrong. Um, we know incredible stories, maybe, of how inheritances were wasted or squandered, as well as how inheritance can be pulled or taken away from rightful heirs. Uh, you might have a story or two of that in your own family. Huge fights, machinations, legal wranglings, feuds, bitterness, and outright wars have taken place over what was supposed to be mine but isn't. Or how it has been swindled from me by someone acting shrewdly and with cunning to steal my inheritance from me. And if you think about it down here on this planet, what can't be stolen? Everything can be stolen, right? Even your identity now can be stolen. Who you actually are can be swapped. So we live where everything can be stolen. So we get very jaded and cynical when the Bible says this can't be taken from you. And yet that's what the Bible's saying is your inheritance can't be taken. So as you're going through the suffering, as you're going through the hard times, Peter is saying, and he would say the same thing to us, remember you have something that is incredibly precious. You have an inheritance. And the inheritance is incorruptible. It can't be twisted. And he uses three words up here to show us that. He says it is imperishable. He says it is undefiled. And he says that it is unfading. Let's look at those three words really quickly. When he says it's imperishable, what is he saying? Well, what he's saying is there's no expiration date on it. Like the milk in your fridge, right? Good till, oh, it's already sour, yuck, right? It, it, it doesn't have an expiration date. It doesn't go bad. It can't be, uh, it, it won't rust out, it won't rot out, it won't fall out. It can't be burned, stolen, or swindled. It is the ultimate safe deposit box in the universe, kept in heaven for us. Did you know you have a safe deposit box? That's a good one. Okay? Many of you go, you see, watch the movies, right? People have safe deposit and all this stuff is kept in there and that kind of stuff. Well, you have one and it's kept up in heaven for you. And Peter says that this safe deposit box is imperishable can't be taken from you that's that's pretty incredible second thing he says 
is it's undefiled, which means it's pure. It's not contaminated, right? You can have something really good, but if it gets contaminated, for example, if you have a really nice house, but then mold invades the house, okay? Now it's defiled. You, you can have a lot of nice stuff, but it's wrecked because of mold, right? It's not going to mold in heaven. Peter says it's undefiled, it's pure. It can't be corrupted or tarnished or tainted. It comes from God's own heart and God's own promises on which he swore by himself. In other words, God said that he has put this in place as an anchor for our soul and that he has sworn by himself to give us a hope that helps us be steadfast in the midst of the most difficult circumstances that we can face. What he's trying to say is God's motives towards us with the inheritance are pure. That God is, what's Peter's learned, God is good. Most of the important stuff is up in heaven. It's in the spirit realm. You can't see it. And it is the greatest gift that we should keep our eyes. When he's saying keep your eyes on the prize, he's talking about our inheritance. And so as we talk about this, what he's saying is that When God gives us, he gives it to us because his motives towards us are pure. It's in reserve in heaven for those who have fled to him for refuge so that, as I said, it's an anchor for our souls which is hidden behind the inner veil where Jesus has entered. And that's really important because, remember, uh, there was the holies in the temple and then the holy of holies, right? And remember, in the holies of holies, nobody went in there except one guy once a year and then with blood. Because if he messed up in the Holy of Holies, you could mess up in the Holies, but if you messed up in the Holy of Holies, the guy died and they drug him out by a rope. You had to be really careful. Nobody got in there. And when Jesus died on the cross and he rose again from that, it said he went into the inner sanctum, the inner veil. We know that the curtain was torn in two that Jesus entered into the Holy of Holies. And you know what he's saying? Okay, so we're here right now. This is us. This is it. But then we're going to go into the same place where Jesus is. We're going to go into that inner veil where nobody's ever been except Jesus. And when we get in there, you know what's in there? Our inheritance. It's kept in there where nobody else can go. That's where it's kept. And God keeps it pure in there. And it keeps it undefiled in there. It can't be tainted or stained by sin, even our own. And then the third thing he says is that Peter makes, uh, the point he makes about his inheritance is that it is unfading. Now, if we didn't get the other two, we should be able to get this one, right? Because I was thinking about it, and if you think through life, everything fades, right? Color fades, right? Run it through the wash too many times. Color fades. I just made a list of things that fade. Color fades, beauty fades, strength fades, bodies fade, right? Years fade, dynasties fade, just ask the Packers, right? That was a brutal game. (laughs) Even the sun itself will one day fade. But the Bible and Peter are very clear in exhorting us that the kingdom of God will never fade and thus neither will our inheritance. Your inheritance can't fade. Isn't that incredible? Think about that. It cannot fade. And that's why Peter's saying, I know it's tough, I know it's brutal, but hang on, have fortitude, Hold on to the rope. Do not give up. Hang on for all your worth. And then when you can't, ask God to give you the strength to hang anyways. Because what you're hanging on for is really, really brilliant. 
And by brilliant, I mean not only intelligently brilliant, but brilliant. Um, It's kept in heaven for us, the ultimate place and source of light that will not fade. The light of heaven will never fade. Um, I was trying to catch something that would make points of this. So I found this article this week. It talked about this supernova that they found. And uh, I had my facts wrong. And Jeff McEwen, oh, those are the other ones. Oh, here it is right here. Gave me the actual facts because he read the same article and he's totally into that stuff. And uh, he says, so they found a supernova that is 570 billion times the brilliance of the sun. The brilliance of our sun. So like if you look at our sun and compare a matchstick to our sun, take our sun, it's a matchstick to this nova. Okay, That's how brilliant this thing is. It is 20 times the luminosity of our entire galaxy. Right? 20 times the entire galaxy. You've seen pictures of the Milky Way. That's a lot of light. Right? It is 20 times the luminosity. And it would take 90 billion years for our sun to put out the same luminosity as this supernova. So we're talking smoking bright. Okay? That is nothing. That sun, this sun that I'm talking about, is going to fade. It's going to burn out. That is nothing to the light in heaven. The Bible says that God dwells in unapproachable light. What are we talking about here? We don't really know. We have no clue. But we know it's in the inner veil and we know it's a place only God dwells. Guess what? No thief can penetrate that light. There's no darkness that can cover a thief as he tries to penetrate that. It can't be stolen from you is what Peter's trying to say. It will never fade. And the last point of the verse I think is equally as important. Uh, It says that those of us who have this faith, who have put our faith in Christ, which is placed and anchored in Jesus are actually, if you look up there, guarded by God himself for a salvation. Now, pause. You have to wait for it, right? Wait for it a little more because we're such so patient as Americans. Wait for it, right? When does it say that will happen? When does it say that this inheritance will arrive? It's ready to be revealed now. Pop it in the microwave. You want it, you got it. Push the button, it pops out, and away you go. No, when does it arrive? At the last time. This all gets rolled out in the end time. And this is what frustrates us. We want it now. I want to see it. Give me some assurance of the promises. Uh, I'm going through hard stuff. How? Convince me I'm supposed to still keep hanging on. Go ahead, God. I dare you. God says, well, I have an inheritance for you. Well, fine. When am I going to get it? When I decide. That's the infuriating thing about inheritance, isn't it? You ever see young people who have an inheritance and then it's written in the will? They ha- there's conditions like they have to wait till they're 25 or, and they're 18 and they're like, seven more years? I can't wait seven more years. Ah! Right? Or, or they have to finish college or they have to do certain things for the inheritance and uh, it just drives people crazy. Here's why we must have patience. And here's why we have to be steadfast, why we have to have fortitude the ability to hang in here. It's because it's not going to be rolled out now. It's going to be rolled out. It will only be revealed in the last time. And so knowing that, Peter then directs ourselves. So we've talked about the promise. Then he directs towards the pressure. Here's the pressure. He says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, 
So that the, gen, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. All right? That's kind of a, when he writes this, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've grieved by various trials. Isn't that a cute way to put that? That's not how I would have written it. You know how I would have written it? Here's how this would be Steve Mitchell's version. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while. No, no, no. In this you rejoice, even though now it's been going on for a whole honking long time and you've been getting your absolute butt kicked in these things, you still rejoice. Now, you can tell why Jesus didn't get me to write the New Testament. All right? What's he saying here? We're exhorted to rejoice even if we've encountered difficult trials. If you think about the trials you've been through, aren't they designed to strip your joy? By the way, Satan does not fear a joyless church. Okay? He doesn't fear it at all. Satan fears a joyful church. He fears a rejoicing church. And you're hearing that from Zach. You're hearing that from me. Because we be a little bit conservative not only in our politics, but also in our emotions, right? And so we come and we sing like we're dead, okay? We don't engage. And it's hard to engage because we're self-conscious. And I understand all of that, but the point we're missing is that all of life is designed to strip us of our joy to the point where we can't even muster it at church anymore. We are getting hooked and we've got to pull out of the hook. How do you pull out of the hook? Peter says, you, you rejoice, right? And he's saying this to people who have gone through these incredible sufferings. As a matter of fact, when he's talking about our inheritance, what Peter and the Bible are trying to inform us is that when you stack it up against the inheritance and what that really is, the inheritance is so beyond the present pressures and the present trials and sufferings that we encounter on this level, which are pretty intense, that the Bible calls them momentary and light afflictions. Why? Because these aren't big? No. Because what it's measured against is so huge, they really amount to nothing once it's all said and done. So he's saying, in the trials, don't lose your... Many, many people... And by the way, you're not in this group, so raise your hands. Yeah, rejoice, okay? Because you're here this morning. Many people have walked away from God with what we call disappointment with God. God hasn't answered their prayers. God hasn't given them what they want. So if that's the way God's going to be, then I walk. Right? I just walk. And many have walked. And and Jesus is going, okay, everybody wants to walk? Walk. Anybody want to stay? And guess who? You guys said, we'll stay. Right? So he's proud of you this morning. He's excited about you this morning. And he's asking you to have fortitude, to hang in there with him, believe him all the way to the end. There's, the Bible does not know anything such as a halfway Christianity, right? You live half your life for Christ and then the other half for yourself and then you're okay, you get in. It doesn't know a three-quarters Christianity. It goes, Jesus is saying, I've called you. Follow me. Come all the way with me. Yep, I know you're, yep, I know you're in your 50s. Yep, I know you're a teenager. Yep, I know you're in your 20s. Yep, I know you're in your 40s. Yep, I know you're in your 70s. Yeah, you know what? All the way. All in. All the way. Stay with me. Keep your eyes on the inheritance. And Peter now, in this too, he's, he's honest. He acknowledges that we grieve. And that word there, grieve, means, you know what in the Greek? Grieve. Okay? Heartbrokenness. The stuff we go through because we go through it. 
But he, but he also says this. It's, it's teaching. It, what he's saying is that through these afflictions, we are taught, what, what they do is they're designed to test the genuineness of our faith. And we think, well, that's stupid. I believe totally. Why does my faith have to be tested? I don't want to be tested. Well, there's a reason it needs to be tested. The reason it needs to be tested is because in all of us, there's impurities, right? There's mixed motives. There's things that aren't supposed to be there. And so trials come our way. We often call them the trial of fire, right? There's a picture of fire. And the idea there is that the impurities get refined out. And, and, and Peter uses this, it's a refining process, and he's talking about gold. And uh, I know something a little bit about this. Uh, I've told the story before in church that Pam and I's wedding rings are made out of gold that I found. Now, I didn't tell the rest of the story, though. So uh, when you go and you find gold, you see gold nuggets. They're really cool. I mean, like, really cool, okay? Like, I found gold, like Alaska, like 49ers, like awesome, okay? And, uh, and so I get really into that. But the thing I never realized about gold nuggets are how much impurities are in them. Because I got all excited. I had uh, over an ounce of gold, and I went to the ring guy, and I said, okay, here's the gold. Could you make our rings out? And he says, I can't. I said, what do you mean you can't? Rings are made out of gold. Make the ring. He goes, no, I can't, Steve. I go, why? He says, you don't realize, but gold has impurities in it. And if I were to make the rings out of the gold you gave me, the ring would fall apart because somewhere in there there'd be grains or cracks and grit and it would it'd cause a, a failure in the ring. Well, what do I got to do? He says, well, you got to go find a metallurgist and, and uh, go get your gold purified. Well, I just happen to know a guy named Tim uh, Maple. Tim and Loopy Maple, some of you know them, great friends. And, and, and Tim's a silversmith, a metalsmith. He works with antiques and all this kind of stuff. And so Tim, I called Tim up. I said, hey, Tim. I, I need to refine my gold. Do you know how to do that? Well, not really, but we can do it. I went, oh, great, okay. But he really did know what he was doing. So we go in, and he's got this, you know, ceramic thingamajigger, kiln thingadig. And, uh, and so he puts my gold in there, and then he dumps a bunch of flux in there, right? I'm thinking, why are you doing that? And it, it gets all in the thing. And then he takes a propane torch, right? 4,000 degrees, and as we watched it, the whole thing kind of boiled and foamed and did this weird stuff, but as you watched, you could see stuff coming out of the gold. Now, that was really exciting on one hand, really depressing on another, because my gold got smaller and smaller. I started out with an ounce of gold. By the time I got done, I had maybe a half ounce to just a little above a half ounce, and as he did it, he kept blowing and, and circling, but you could see the gold get pure and pure and pure. And he did that for about 10 minutes. And by the time he got done, he just took the torch, blew all the slag off to the side, which was the flux with all the impurities. And then he took the torch and he blew it and blew it right off the end, blew it into a thing of water and pulled out later. And I had this button of pure gold. Pure gold is amazing. You can take a button of pure gold and squish it with your finger. Okay? It's just incredible. And so I took my button of gold, and I went back to the jewel, and then he mixed it with other metals, and it became Pam and I's wedding ring. All right? Right? That's the exact same process that God wants to do. He wants to make us his wedding ring. Okay? He's saying, hang on, the inheritance. Yeah, I know the fires, but the inheritance is incredible. Hang on to it. Peter points out in this passage, even gold perishes. 
And that our faith has to stand the test of the fires and be purified so that it will result in praise and honor and revelation at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Not just for Jesus, but also for his church. And so he's saying it's a really important process. Don't give up in it. Again, notice this isn't a head thing. This is an actual rubber meets the road, shoe leather, real experience as you're going through time right now. It's not just an intellectual construct. It's not just a great idea to be pondered. But rather, Peter's saying this is a relationship to be fully engaged in. Uh, When we think of engaging in relationships, guys and gals see it a little differently. Uh, So ladies would see it as a relationship to be totally embraced. Right? Because they're thinking relationship-wise. Guys, we would see it as uh, a relationship that demands our utmost loyalty and allegiance. And I say that because we're wired differently. You have noticed that, right? Okay? Thank you. Okay. So look how Peter shifts the focus. So he goes from the promise. He does talk realistically about the pressure. But then look what he shifts it to because he shifts it here to the prize. And the prize is the relationship. He knows full well what this group of people has been through and, and may well go through more, right? He's, he's talking about that. And, uh, and he, yet he points them back to Jesus. He says, remember, as a good coach, Peter's a good coach, and as one who's been through it himself and, as a matter of fact, is about to lose his own life. He's saying, You're gonna, you know what's about to happen to me. They pretty much knew what was going to take place. Follow me. Don't worry about the implications of the cost. It's worth it on the other side. Track, my, let my life be a model for you. Go through the pressure the way I'm going through the pressure. And uh, he says, keep your eyes on the prize. No matter how difficult or dangerous it gets, never, ever forget who you believed in. Hold on to the rope of faith. Don't let go. So he's saying, have fortitude. Stay with it. Let God give you strength. How does he do this? Well, he says this, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter recognizes that these people have not seen Jesus the way he had seen Jesus. Peter walked with Jesus. He talked with people. He ate fish with Jesus. Peter had interactions with Jesus. He had good ones and bad ones. And so he recognizes they're doing something he hadn't even done. Because he actually had a foundation to work off of where he'd actually uh, been with Jesus in a physical way. But he also realized that something Jesus had predicted, something Jesus had actually prayed about, was happening with this group of people. And that is actually happening with us. Jesus prayed at the end of his life in John 17. You can go back there and look at it, but let me just read it for you this morning. It says this. Jesus is praying. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. These people had come to believe in Jesus through the word of Peter. Who believe in me through their word and that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And it was happening through the eyes of faith and through the preaching of those who had been with Jesus and had actually seen Jesus physically, this group of people also saw Jesus. 
They knew him through faith and they deeply loved him just as the disciples had. And they expressed it in spite of their trials and in spite of their sufferings with rejoicing and joy. Peter says, though you've not seen him, you love him. You love him. You guys love him this morning. That's why you're here. This isn't academic. This isn't church. This isn't religiosity. Why are you here this morning? Because you love Jesus. That's why you're here. And he says, though you don't see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that's inexpressible. Remember I said Satan doesn't fear a joyless church? So this, this is a practical thing that should inform us because when we gather together, it is gathered together, it should inform our joy level. And it should inform our rejoicing. Uh, as we talk about Jesus, he's talking about <clears throat> a clue to our worship. You know, when you think about what are we really doing here on Sunday? Right? When, most of the time, you know, a pastor really doesn't tell us anything we don't know. Nine times out of ten, we're being reminded of what we already know. Why? Because what we already know is so valuable, we always need to be reminded of it. Do we come because we're going to get something out of it for ourselves, or do we come because we're giving something of ourselves for him? It vastly changes the way worship works. If we're singing to him, there's a different joy level than if we're here to get something out of it. Remember, Jesus himself said, you're more blessed if you give than if you receive. So those who give get more than those who come to get because those who come to give have joy and have an expression that others don't. That's what Peter's pointing out here. Uh, Zach spoke yesterday, excuse me, he was talking at the men's breakfast, did a great job. And he exhorted the, the guys to engage, to be men who are real role models for others. He talked about four different men in his life and three that we shouldn't be like and one that we should be like. And then he went on to how that man, his father, spurred him on to engage himself in the Christian life and why he was in ministry today. And it was a really, uh, a really great, great word. To be men who engage passionately in worship, why, why am I saying that? Because, guys, when we read this passage, though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you've not seen him, you believe in him, rejoice. We think that's for ladies. Oh, Peter's talking to the ladies now. Okay, I can check out. That, there's, there's nowhere that says up there, ladies, though you've not seen him, you love him. Okay? That, do you see it up there? Guys, this is written to guys as well. Men, though you've not seen him, you love him. Men, though you do not see him now, you believe in him, and you rejoice with joy that's inexpressible. That's a byproduct of being in the relationship. It's a byproduct. Uh, signs of a healthy church, joy, rejoicing, gratefulness. Satan doesn't fear a joyless church. He fears a rejoicing church. Maybe that's why everything works overtime to dull us out so that when we come together, we go, I guess this isn't so hot either. Right? Satan's good. He's subtle. He tries to rob. He tries to steal. Remember, your heritage can't be stolen. We should rejoice like we always have it. This is exactly what Peter's doing to that group of people. He's saying the same thing. Remember here, again, guys, that he's talking about men. What's he saying? He says, we sh- because we believe we should rejoice for we, like them, are obtaining the salvation of our souls, even if we can't see how it's playing out right now. Right? 
When you look at your present circumstances, I bet you for most of us, if I said, do you really clearly see where Jesus is at work right now, presently at this instant? Kind of muddy, right? But if I said to you, all right, go back 15 years, all right? Go back 15 years. Now, some of us can't do that. Clara, you can't do that, okay? All right, you can't, right? But go back 15 years, those of us who can do that. If I said, in the past, looking back, can you see God's footprints and fingerprints all over the things that happened? Right? Things that at the time were so, oh my goodness, is God even answering? Did I make the right choice? You look back and go, oh my goodness, look at what he did. Right? So what I'm saying is if you can see the fingerprints and footprints 15 years back, Clara, for you five, okay? If it back, then look in the present. When you see mud, guess what? He's in the mud. He is just as involved in the mud as he is in the clarity of 15 years ago. And that's what Peter's saying is hang on even when it's tough, when it's muddy, when you don't know for sure, because he's in that. What he's saying is, though you can't see it playing out right now, hang on to it because your inheritance is precious, it's valuable, it's imperishable, it is undefiled, it is unfading. It's not going to go away. How precious is it? Peter says thousands have searched for you and I have by faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, he goes on to say, concerning this salvation, he's talking about the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And then he goes on to say this, it was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. Do you have questions about God? Do you have questions for God? Wouldn't you love to sit down and ask God your questions? You know, I got news for you. The angels don't have it all either. And they've been there the whole time. They're like, what's he doing? How is he going about? Wow, right? What has God told us? He's told us the kind of person he is. He's told us his truth. And he's told us to hang on to it. Does that mean we know everything there is to know about the living God? Not even close. We have no idea who we're up against, all right? And what Peter's saying here is that these people who searched, it was astounding. All the people in the Bible, think of all the Bible characters you know and the prophets that you know, they were searching for both the time and the person of the Messiah. And it was revealed to them that they were serving you and I. Now, Peter's writing, he's writing to this group of people, but he's also saying it extends to you and I. The ones who would also never see Christ, but believe on him and be saved by faith as they were. And when I'm, there's a profound mystery here of godliness. Paul writes about this. He says, I hope to come to you soon. I'm writing these things so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated in the spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among nations, believed on in the world, and taken up into glorious. How mysterious is all this? The angels themselves long to look into the very things we've been talking about today. That's how fantastically mysterious it is and the promises that God has. They don't even have the full picture. So what's the takeaway? Right When you really boil this all down uh, and, and walk through it, what Peter and the Bible together, is trying to tell us 
that there's an inheritance that we have to hang on to that's so precious you don't trade it for anything. You don't give it up for anything. You don't walk away for anything. You hang on to it. What's that inheritance? Here's what the Bible's saying. And if you get this, you get a lot. What it's saying is that Jesus is our inheritance. Jesus is our own reward. Jesus is his own reward. When you have Jesus, you have enough. What it's trying to tell us that we already know intuitively is that if I have Jesus, I have everything. If I have everything, but I don't have Jesus, I have nothing. And so the Bible's saying, yes, I know the fears, I know the concerns, I know the worries, I know the trials, I know the griefs, I know the suffering, I know all of that. But believe him, love him, trust him, no matter what trials, no matter what difficulties or troubles come our way, for the outcome of our faith is the salvation of our souls that will not be revealed when? Now, revealed in the last time. And it will be ultimately worth it. Hang on, church. Have fortitude. Don't give up. Let's pray. Father, as we lift this up to you, I can't make that come alive for my friends, but you can. You can through the power of your spirit. And I don't know who's struggling with doubt or who's struggling with their mess or who's struggling with insecurity or uh, questions about your love for them, but I know you do. And you can have a conversation with them this morning. And you can highlight one or two of these points and you can go on and, and have a conversation all through the week. What is the critical issue, Lord, is our hearts this morning. Will we draw close to you? And I pray that as we've talked about this, that Peter's words will encourage us to re, re-up with you, re-face into the pressure, re-face into the wind, and to let you take us where you want us to go, not where we want to go. And that will require great courage, great fortitude, but it will also promise great reward. May we believe you with all our hearts, and we ask this in your name. Amen.